The Blue G90 Pro review is done. This gaming phone has just a paltry 4 gigabytes of RAM, which means it can't be a gaming phone, right? Right? Well, it's time to find out. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're exploring expectations, and some of those expectations fly in the face of what I know, or thought I knew, about mobile phones. I did not expect that coming from Blue, but here we are, and there we go. But before we get there, it's time for the news of the week. Now, before we get to the news, I just wanted to throw a little hot take at you because it kind of sort of affects our coverage a bit and it's irritating me and I want to get it off my chest and this is my podcast so I get to say whatever the heck fire I want and you're gonna like it! Sorry. Anyway, I've come to a decision on my Pixel 5 coverage and I've decided not to buy the phone to review it. And there are a couple of caveats here which I'll get to in a minute, but at the end of the day... I have to vote with my wallet, and I just cannot stomach paying the $100 MMVST, also known as the Millimeter Wave Verizon Stupid Tax. I'm sure the Pixel is a great phone, and I'm sure I could subsidize at least half of the cost by selling my Pixel 4a. But I'm sorry, I have to take a stand. Google knowingly put useless tech into its phone, which increased the price by $100 to cater to a big, stupid company that will probably do very little to move the needle on Google Pixel sales. So yeah, I'm one person, and that's one less phone that Google will sell, but this is my hill, and I'm going to die on it. I'm just really not a fan of Verizon's brand of 5G, so I don't want to support those who support it. It's just not ready yet, and especially in Verizon's case, it won't be ready for years and years. Now, this may change if Google ever starts returning my emails, and I guess fat chance of that now, right? <laughs> or there's a possibility that Cliff might buy one because he gets bored or because it's Tuesday or something. So there's still hope, but for now, we're probably just not going to cover it because thinking about the Verizon stupid tax just makes me angry. So to make up for it, I went out and got a Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition to review, so there's that. But now let's turn our sights to something much more fun. Physicists from the University of Arkansas built a circuit that can theoretically generate clean and limitless power from graphene. It's honestly the most useful thing to come out of Arkansas since... Well, actually, it might be the first useful thing Arkansas has contributed ever. So, well done, Arkansas. Can't even spell your own damn name right. Isn't that right, Arkansas? Well, you may recall a couple of episodes ago, we talked about graphene quite a bit, so I reached out to Sam Gong about this, and I'll get to his response in a moment. Now, there's a lot of physics here, and a lot of general smart guy stuff, which is frankly beyond me, because as we've established time and again, I'm an idiot. But as I understand it, graphene has a sort of natural wave to it that can be useful in harvesting electricity. Granted, at this point, there are several caveats here, First, and most importantly, the amount of power that's generated is very low at the moment, and the experiment still needs to get downsized so it can be incorporated onto a silicon chip. So we're not going to be turning our coal factories in just yet. And I reached out to Sam Gong from Real Graphene asking about this. Now, granted, 
I'm not sure if this is necessarily his thing. He's an engineer, and this is being done by physicists, but as someone who works with graphene, I just wanted to get his thoughts. And he said that the circuit wasn't entirely limitless power, saying, quote, conservation of energy is still at work here, but it does allow the circuit to operate longer without a power source. And I asked for some further clarification on that, but I haven't heard back as of this broadcast. So again, it's probably a long way off, but it's still pretty cool. And speaking of science fiction, science fact, researchers have developed a transparent wood that might be able to replace glass in a few applications. The wood comes from an eco-friendly, sustainable, low-density balsa tree that has been treated to a room-temperature oxidizing bath. It's like a spa, but with carving wood instead of soccer moms. The transparent wood is more durable and lighter than glass, and if it breaks, you're more likely to get a splinter rather than a dagger in your finger or, you know, your face or whatever. The researchers haven't delved into potential commercial applications just yet. They're just the nerds. It's up to the money men to figure out how best to exploit, <clears throat> I mean, utilize this material. Wood windshields? Wood windows? It's an intriguing proposition. Friend of the show, Nick Sutrick over at Android Central, broke down the graphic resolution difference between the OG Oculus Quest and the Oculus Quest 2. The differences are definitely there, for sure, but... The main difference between the two comes down to the finer details for the most part. And don't get me wrong, in the world of VR, finer details matter. The key difference comes from the screens and the processing power. Remember, the first generation Quest uses a Snapdragon 835 processor, while the latest gen is using a Snapdragon 865 based processor built for VR. And the main details you can pick out are different, but add a lot of character to the scenes. You get the idea on the Quest 1 for sure, but the Quest 2 adds that extra layer of multi bene mwah, if you know what I mean. At least I hope you know what I mean, because otherwise I just made a kissy sound in your ear and things are super awkward now. Okay then. NVIDIA gave a neat presentation touting its AI and using that AI to improve video chat, which is something that is in desperate need of improvement. Good lord. And some of what it's displaying is neat, like boosting the resolution of a video feed from 360p to 720p, or adding virtual backgrounds, you know, which are always neat. But there's other things that NVIDIA is using AI to fix that... Sure, there are persistent problems in video conferencing, but they're also due to bad habits of people on video calls. Things like silencing your kids in the background. Sure, he's banging on a piano and you can silence the piano, but what you can't change is the fact that that guitar is going to fall right on your kid's head and kill him while you're on your Zoom call. And yes, a kid banging on a piano is annoying, but so is... What? What? I, I can't hear you! Carl, go play with your sister! Maybe just pick a different room for your video call. Just a thought. And by the way, take down those guitars while the kid's playing underneath them. So yeah, AI can do some cool stuff with video conferencing, but so can you. Don't make the AI work hard just because you're lazy and don't know how to zoom. So I mean, thanks NVIDIA, awesome. But everyone else, just get it together. Congress released a report on anti-competitive behavior from tech giants, including Google, and none other than Joe Hindi, friend of the show and my former podcast partner, was cited in the congressional report. 
Yes, the man who has, quote, just once I'd like someone to call me sir without adding, you're making a scene, in his Twitter profile was cited in a congressional report. I'm not sure if that says more about Joe or about Congress. The article in question was Joe's from August titled The 10 Best Third-Party App Stores for Android and Other Options Too, and I honestly didn't know there were 10, let alone 10 best alternative Play Stores. Why would you need 10? Never mind, that's probably another conversation. I don't really have anything to add here except congratulations, Joe. You finally made it to Capitol Hill and you weren't in handcuffs. Actually, that's not true. I do have something to add because, as it turns out, Joe might just be helping to take down tech giants like Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon because House Democrats, that's right, those damn liberals, they don't like Apple and Facebook and all of them enjoying what they're calling, quote, monopoly power, which is like saying they definitely don't have a monopoly, but yeah, they kind of have a monopoly. Now, there's a ton to unpack here, as evidenced by the 450-page report, but the CNBC link in the show notes at benefitofadoubt.com breaks it all down for you, and I'm going to give you the TLDR as much as possible, and we're going to start with the two that I agree with the most, which brings us to... Amazon. Amazon has a monopoly over most of its third-party sellers, which is basically all of Amazon. Amazon has seller's data and has been shown to repeatedly use that data to absorb or outprice those same sellers on items that are hot. I'll give you an example. A third-party seller sells widgets. They make a killing selling widgets. Amazon knows they make a killing because Amazon is handling the transactions and they're making, I'm making up a number here, 15% on every sale. But Amazon knows that it can make those widgets for only 50% of the MSRP. So it just up and starts selling widgets themselves while doing the third-party seller the favor of undercutting them by 25%, which means Amazon now gets 25% profit for every sale. Now, all of those are totally made-up numbers, but the logic follows. Behind closed doors, Amazon refers to third-party sellers as, quote, internal competitors. Nice, Amazon. And then there's Apple. I won't talk long about this because you know I agree with the Democrats who are saying that Apple's stranglehold on the app market stifles basically everyone. I'm not going to go all Tim Sweeney on you, but Apple could at least try to make it look like they don't want to be jerks by allowing a 30-step process to install the third-party app store or something. Now, onto the one which I only kind of agree with, but I also support the Democrats because we're talking about Facebook and just F Facebook, dude. Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, has a monopoly in social networking markets. The report talks about online advertising, but really the main offense here is how Facebook either destroys competitors or gobbles them up, and Instagram is exhibits A through, I don't know, U or something in this case. Basically, Instagram was growing rapidly, and Facebook wanted those tasty users, so first it threatened Instagram, then it bought it. Very nice, jerkwads. And finally, we have Google, who has dominated search and, duh, the company's name is a verb, for God's sakes. But because of Google's fingers in so many different pies, that allows Google to be better at searching, which in turn draws people to Google services, and round and round we go. Do I think Google owning YouTube and Gmail and Chrome is problematic? Yeah. Not really, to be honest. I do take exception to its stance on third-party app stores as well, but only to the extent as I take exception to the Microsoft Internet Explorer thing. 
Yeah, I guess it's a problem, but is it a get your underpants in a bunch problem? I guess okay, but Google is number four out of four, so let's prioritize here, people. That's all I'm saying. So definitely hit up the link in the show notes to read up on this because there's potential that some or all of these companies may be having major headaches in the not-too-distant future. This next story is a little political, but for the record, if Trump hosted anything like this, I would report on it too. And I can say this with confidence because I'm fairly confident that no one minus, what, James Woods would actually do an event like this for him or with him, unless, of course, we're all clamoring for a shark live reunion tour. But anyway, Joe Biden is hosting a Star Trek-themed fundraiser with the likes of Patrick Stewart, George Takei, and my personal favorite, Will Wheaton. But only because I get to say Will Wheaton, not because I particularly like Will Wheaton, but I just like saying Will Wheaton, and hat tip to Family Guy on that one. A few weeks ago, Wisconsin Dems did a Zoom table read of The Princess Bride, and you could attend for a donation. Same deal here. And fun fact, Biden is actually undercutting the Wisconsin Democrats by only suggesting a $25 donation instead of $27. All that being said, I'm a Trek fan, but I'm not sure how much of a Trek fan. Like, The Princess Bride was baller, so I'm very tempted to jump in on this one, too, if for no better reason than to support Biden because I live in a blue state and my vote means nothing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go vote. Seriously, go vote. Figure out how to vote early. I don't care who you vote for. Figure out how to vote early. Figure out how to mail in your ballot. Figure it out. Go vote. It's going to be super messed up this year, so make sure you do it early if possible. Flatten the curve. Wait, is that a thing? It might be a thing for this. Well, anyway, I've done my civic duty. I don't care who you vote for. Just please go vote for Biden. SpaceX had to scrub launches twice this week, and while that isn't terribly concerning, bad weather can scrub launches because, you know, it's Florida, but these two scrubs came from unexpected sensor readings, and that's not cool, so Elon is heading down to Florida to inspect things personally. Basically, all of SpaceX is like, the boss is coming, look busy, and I get that. You know when the boss shows up on site, productivity tends to skyrocket because no one wants to be caught napping when the boss is walking the floor. But Elon is just one man, and his attentions will be split between working on SpaceX's other project, Starship, and now he's got to go babysit the engineers on the Falcon 9 rocket. I mean, the thing has gone to space 90 freaking times. At this point, Elon should be cartwheeling down the aisle in glee that he got 90 launches and insane amounts of great press from this rocket. But no, that's not the case. Elon is heading down to Florida to take charge and make all his little cubicle smurfs look busy for a week. Cool, Elon. But as it turns out, even without Elon's oversight, SpaceX can get one right every now and then. SpaceX did launch another 60 Starlink satellites into orbit this week, putting the total to 715, though this latest crop won't reach their standard orbit until February of 2021. But Starlink is looking to make the beta more widely available in the northern U.S. and Canada, and hey, Chicago is in the northern U.S. Specifically, Musk was asked about Detroit and Ann Arbor, Michigan, which are roughly on the same parallel. Musk replied that they'll be up soon, just after I go kick some people down in Cape Canaveral. Okay, so I made that second part up. 
I'm intrigued by what Starlink will ultimately be like. Speed tests back in August put downloads at between 11 and 60 megabits per second with upload speeds between 5 and 18 megabits per second. Now we're not talking Stadia speeds here and in fact my family would probably destroy that bandwidth pretty quickly. But I'm fairly sure I'm not the target audience. If this can bring speeds like that to more rural areas and some farmers can start to, you know, live in the 21st century, then I can respect that. I'm just hoping that SpaceX solves their satellites blocking telescopes thing first. Facebook announced that it will start blocking political ads starting the day after the election day, which is kind of like closing the barn after all the animals have run and the barn burned down, and the farm got repossessed, and a meteor struck it, becoming the epicenter for the end of all life on Earth. But yeah, go ahead and lock down those political ads, Facebook. Good call. Actually, I can kind of see the reasoning here. Election Day this year is going to be really messed up, and we will honestly have no idea who won the elections until days or even weeks later because of mail-in ballots and whatnot. So Facebook wants to prevent misinformation from getting out there about the elections themselves. Of course, if Facebook would fact-check political ads in the first place, this wouldn't be a problem, but again... Probably another conversation, and a stupid conversation at that. Now, I'm not saying it's millimeter wave stupid, but it's still pretty stupid. What was I saying? Oh, right. Facebook will block political ads after it's too damn late to do anything, which is pretty much what I expect from Facebook all the time anyway. Google announced this week that Assistant will now be able to open certain apps and retrieve results from within them. And I'm going to use the same example CNBC did because it's ridiculous. But you can ask Google Assistant to open the Walmart app and search for fishing poles. I mean, is that a thing that even people do more than once? Anyway, there are 30 apps on board the Assistant train. Some of the highlights include Walmart, Spotify, Duncan, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and Discord. Some of the supported commands include check news on Twitter if... You know, you hate knowing real things. Or send a message to so-and-so on Discord. And that one would be funny because the benefit of a doubt Discord is like a weird sea of usernames, none of which is Rachel. Anyway, you can ask Walmart when your order is set to arrive if they were, I guess, out of it at Amazon. Speaking of which, naturally Amazon is not on the list because they have their own assistant who sucks at everything except for ordering things on Amazon. So that's like the one niche that assistant won't be allowed to fill. One drawback is there's really no way to know what apps are supported except to try random apps or listen to snarky podcast hosts. Personally, I prefer the latter, especially since none of the articles that I found actually had a full list. Awesome. Personally, I doubt I'll ever use this, and it's mostly because just about every example of an action I found led directly to something I would need my phone in my hand to actually do. And if my phone's in my hand... I'll just tap. But hey, maybe it'll be awesomer for you, and if that's the case, you have my congratulations. And finally, one Tesla user accidentally butt-dialed his phone, which isn't so bad, and can I be honest with you? My name is Adam. I'm usually first in many, many people's phone books, and I can assure you, I am no stranger to the butt-dial. But in the case of Dr. Ali Vaziri, it was really bad because he didn't butt-dial someone so much as he accidentally butt-ordered a $4,300 upgrade to his Tesla. Yeah. So he was using a Tesla app for whatever Tesla owners use Tesla apps for, and he slipped his phone into his pocket, accidentally ordering the enhanced autopilot, which is definitely not autopilot. 
His card was charged another 4300 bucks, and he was just like, no, wait, no! But then he had to drive because autopilot is not autopilot. But he called customer service, and they're like, it's chill, dude. Just hit the cancel button. The only problem is, there was no cancel button. And long story short, he's now the proud owner of a thing that doesn't do the thing that its name suggests, and a credit card bill $4,300 heavier. He's fighting it, and he should, but I can assure you from now on, when he's done with that Tesla app, he will be swiping it up to dismiss it. Good luck and Godspeed, friend. This week's Tech Yeah! segment isn't really a tech item per se, but it's definitely a handy item. This is the DSuckus 18-in-1 Snowflake Multi-Tool. That's right, I said Snowflake, Snowflake. This is one of those items that I saw on Instagram or something, and I was like, hey, that looks interesting, but I don't trust companies that sell things on Instagram, so let's check Amazon, and sure enough, there it was. This is a roundish tool that's designed to look like a snowflake. And around the circumference, you've got a variety of tools like a flathead screwdriver, Phillips head screwdriver, and six different hex drivers. Inside the flake, you have eight nut drivers, plus there's a rope cutting blade, a bottle opener, and a hole for a keychain. And actually, I'm not really sure if they count the keychain hole as a tool or not. Well, they probably do. So anyway, the main thing I got this for was for my bike. I'll hang the tool off the seat of my bike and I'll have it with me if anything goes wrong. But I can see it being handy for any number of situations. Obviously, having a normal tool will always be preferable. But for situations where carrying around a full toolbox isn't an option, this is a good substitute. Plus, it's less than $9 on Amazon. So really, why not? The tool itself is half a centimeter thick, so it's sturdy and durable because it's made of stainless steel, so you'll be hard-pressed to break it. There's a bit of branding on one side, just the name of the tool, or the name of the company, whatever desuckus means. Plus, if anybody mouths off at you, you can chuck at them Ninja Star style, and trust me, this thing will hurt. I'm kidding, don't do that. Unless they're a really major jerk. No, just don't even do that. Just stop. If you're looking for a quick little multi-tool that you can shove in your pocket, or you've already started looking for stocking stuffers for the holidays, grab one off the link on my site, benefitofadow.com, and you'll be helping out the show. And you'll have my thanks. So... I'm going to throw some true facts at you. I was skeptical as heckfire about a, air quotes, gaming phone with a paltry 4 gigabytes of RAM. Like, you're kidding me, right? And the RAM is not the only place where this phone falls short. But it's also a $250 phone, so yeah, it's going to fall short somewhere. And the thing is, aside from one glaring omission, which for me is a more of a niche case anyway, but aside from that, the Blue G90 Pro is a damn fine phone. And yes, it is a gaming phone, no doubt about it. This is our full review of the Blue G90 Pro. Before I get into it, I should preface this by saying that back in my pocket nowadays, I was pretty much the blue beat writer. Anytime the company pitched us a review phone, and it was a lot, it came to me. And I'll be honest, keeping in mind that this was over four years ago, I reviewed some real dogs, like phones that didn't really qualify as, what's the word I'm looking for here? Oh right, usable. Now I don't want to harp because I need to make this point absolutely clear. This is not the case here. That is very much not the case here. First, it should be mentioned that these days, 
Really, any phone is going to survive your basic usability tests. Some might be a tad on the slow side, but for the most part, you can slap down 150 bucks and pick up a phone that you will not hate to use. So in that sense, the bar has been significantly lowered. But the Blue G90 Pro is actually a good phone. Like, not just usable or decent, but I'm going to go so far as to say it's a legitimately good phone. At $250, it's not the best phone, nor should it be at that price point. But it is a good phone, and in some categories, some fairly specific categories for sure, the Blue G90 is the phone to beat. So let's get to it. Starting out with hardware, this is a well-built, solid phone that is quite attractive. You've got a 6.5-inch Full HD LCD display, which, okay, it's LCD, but that's fine. The water drop notch at the top of the screen accommodates a 32-megapixel wide-angle selfie camera. The phone is powered by a MediaTek Helio G90T processor built on a 12-nanometer process. And, of course, you've got the aforementioned 4 gigabytes of RAM. You've got 128 gigabytes of storage with microSD expansion, and all this is powered by a beefy 5100 milliamp hour battery. There's a headphone jack on the bottom because this phone costs less than $500, so of course it has a headphone jack. There is a single bottom firing speaker that sounds like absolute tinny garbage, and that's the first downside of the phone. I mean, most phone speakers are bad, but this one is just, oh god, it gives me shivers. But it's loud and, you know, ear piercing, so there's that. The phone comes in a purple haze color, and I think Jimmy might approve. It's really a physically attractive phone, no doubt. The purple haze colorway on the back is interrupted by a quad-ish camera setup and fingerprint sensor, plus some obligatory blue branding. Overall, this is a beefy, beautiful phone, and there's very little not to like about the hardware except that one speaker. Oh, and one other thing. This phone does not have NFC, which, are you kidding me? It's 2020. This isn't wireless charging or an IP rating we're talking about. This is NF-freaking-C. And I was just boggled when I tried to pay at a store with Google Pay, and it just didn't work. Now, I am me, and I use my phone to buy darn near everything, so this is an absolute deal-breaker for me. Maybe it won't be for you. NFC payments and Bluetooth pairing aren't exactly commonplace yet, nor are they really rare, though, so it's hard to imagine why the hardware simply got left out, but sure enough, it did. And, oddly enough, this phone does come with wireless charging, which may surprise you. It certainly did me when I basically stumbled across it a week into my review period. I mean, I probably knew that it had it, but once I found out there was no NFC, there definitely won't be wireless charging. Holy crap, there's wireless charging. Well, how about that? Personally, I'd say leave out the wireless charging coils and instead put NFC in, but whatever, I guess. So one night, five years from now, if you're in a bar and you feel like winning some cash, your trivia question is, what flagship phone from the year 2020 excluded NFC but included wireless charging? You'll go home with at least 20 bucks in your pocket. Of course, you're going to have to be at a really nerdy bar, but, you know, it's still a good trivia question. Another, I don't know if you want to call it an oversight, but this phone does not support 5G at all. Considering that 5G still isn't there yet, despite what carriers would tell you, that's not a priority for Blue at this time who sells the phone on Amazon, and carriers can go suck a fat one. And this being the second phone in a row that I reviewed without 5G, it really wasn't a big deal at all. 
Blue did include a case in the box, which is designed for gaming, so there's that. The case adds several millimeters to the already thick phone, but it also adds four air vents to help keep the phone cool, even during long periods of gaming. And before we get into the software, we need to take a few minutes to talk about the display, which is... It's pretty good. It's an LCD panel and it's only 60 hertz, but after each point I make in this review, you need to mentally insert $200 phone. So you don't get the deepest blacks, you don't get an always on display, or even double tap to wake, which by the way, I really miss when I'm on a phone that doesn't have that. But the screen is responsive, a tad bit washed out, but not terribly so, and has really wide viewing angles. So overall, I can't complain, but I gotta be honest with you folks, my eyes kind of suck, so, you know, take that for what you will. On the software side, this is a very close to stock Android 10 that ships with the phone. There are a couple of quirks in there that we will dive into, but first, the Google Feed page that sits on the left. Now, until I reviewed this phone, I thought the Google News Feed was fairly straightforward, but this phone fumbles on a couple of points here. The first is the hamburger menu that you get in the bottom right corner of each story in the feed. You know, you can use the three-dot menu to help customize your Google feed by eliminating interests or publications, etc. Well, 50% of the time I tried to use that Google feed, that button simply did not work. And there was no rhyme or reason to it. Just tap and <laughs> nothing. This is kind of a bummer, if I'm honest. I use that hamburger button frequently while browsing Google feed and... Great, now I want hamburgers. But seriously, 50% of the news stories that I report on for this podcast come from that feed, so being unable to customize it was not only a bummer, but it actually hurt my workflow. The other weird thing about the software lies in the settings menu, most of which is laid out in a straightforward manner comparable to the Google Pixel 4a, but there are a few options like battery life that are tucked away in odd places. For example, to report on screen on time, you don't go to battery settings, you go to the apps list. It's just kind of weird. The only other real software tweak is a smart touch button that is a button that floats on top of your screen, kind of like a chat head or a message bubble in Android 11. And this button is configurable for a single press, double press, and a long press to perform a very limited number of actions like go back to the previous page, go to the home screen, lock the phone, yada yada. While I see that can be handy for some people, I turned it off because that floating button on top of everything got in the way while I was gaming, and this is a gaming phone, so just no thank you. So there's one little software thing that dovetails nicely into our performance segment, which is probably going to be one of the longer performing segments we'll have on this show, because gaming. But anyway, on the Blue G90 Pro, I continued my use of Android's gestures since I'd gotten used to them on the Pixel. The only real hiccup I noticed was when trying to exit a landscape game like Fortnite or Call of Duty, the phone lagged quite a bit, making it difficult to actually leave the game. Maybe that's why Blue calls it a gaming phone. Who knows? They just don't want you to leave the games. So let's go ahead and talk about performance, and we'll start with raw numbers that for the first time in this podcast reflect why I actually don't like benchmarks all that much. The phone's Geekbench scores are 419 single core and 1580 multi-core. The single-core score is about on pace with a Poco F1, which had a Snapdragon 845 processor, and the multi-core score is on pace with a Xiaomi Redmi Note 8 Pro, which, well, would you look at that? It had a Helio G90T processor. It performs a little worse in the Pixel 4 in the single-core test and a little better than in the multi-core test. And just for giggles, I also tested the LG V60, and 
Well, it wasn't even close. The V60 ran the race, collected its trophy, and was already ordering a drink at the bar by the time the G90 Pro crossed the finish line. But raw numbers are not the whole story here, because I threw Call of Duty at this phone. I threw Fortnite at this phone. I threw Asphalt 9 at this phone. And in all cases, the phone just giggled and said, what else you got? So, total honesty, loading games is a little bit on the slow side compared to the LG V60. But once loaded, these games just fly through. No hiccups, no stutters. The only real issue I ran into was the aforementioned swipe-up gesture to dismiss the app. But is that all a gaming phone needs to do? Well... Yes and no. And to expand upon that answer, we're going to need to dip back into the software on the phone just a little bit. One thing that was noticeably absent in this gaming phone was a gaming mode. You know, the kind of mode that kicks in automatically and turns off notifications and whatnot while you're in the game. Distractions can mean the difference between 80th place and first place in a battle royale. Well, that and not being an idiot, which I frequently am, but that's, again, a different conversation. The lack of a gaming mode is a disappointing miss, but then again, in home screen options, you can opt to turn on Google's at-a-glance widget that I got used to on the Pixel 4a, but on the blue phone, it just doesn't work. It made no difference whatsoever on my home screen, which seems a little odd. But is this a gaming phone? Well, it's liquid-cooled, and while I played that myriad of games I talked about, I never felt the phone get hot, which is a very good thing. The thick rubber case that comes with the phone has four vents built into it to help keep the phone cool, as I mentioned before. And I appreciate details like that. And what's missing are things like accessories that enhance the gaming experience, or touch areas on the shoulders for triggers, stuff like that. It's easy to call this a gaming phone, but it would be more accurate to call it a phone that you can game with. That, however, does not look good on the bumper stickers, so gaming phone it becomes. And what I can say is this phone is a good flagship phone in terms of performance, but a gaming phone? Eh, I'm not so sure I would go that far. And that's okay, because this phone is like $250, so just stop complaining, man. I get that. Is this the best gaming phone you'll find at that price point? Most assuredly. And Blue backs that up with a 5100 milliamp hour battery, which makes this not only a good gaming phone, but it makes it a two-day phone, you know, if you don't really do too much gaming on it. During my review period of about three weeks, I consistently got around six hours of screen on time with this baby, with much of that going to gaming. A typical day saw me play around three and a half hours of Call of Duty Mobile, maybe around an hour of Clash Royale, and a smattering of other games. And I mean, that's just a beast. And since I started reviewing phones for this podcast, that's easily the best battery life I've seen thus far. Of course, it's also the largest battery that i reviewed thus far, so there is that. That may well change in the future, but for now, this phone is the guy. Moving on to camera, well, let's just say they had to cut some corners somewhere, and NFC was not the only casualty. The camera setup here is, well, I'd like to say that it's social media good, but... It's not even really that. Under perfect circumstances, good light, absolutely no moving subjects, you can get good shots. But if there's anything going on in that photo, it's not going to be pretty. The 48 megapixel sensor main camera is a good sensor, but maybe it's Blue's AI or something. But even during the day, which is literally the best circumstances where you can take photos, a good photo seems almost like an accident. Now, 
when those photos are good, they're pretty good. Color representation is very reliable. There's no oversaturation on reds or greens or browns. They all have good tone. It's kind of like letting a professional artist paint a beautiful portrait while that artist is also trying to fend off a four-year-old at the same time. The idea is there, the building blocks are good, but the end result is not so great. At night, lights are basically just large splotches of white, and there's no real detail anywhere. Focus is tricky, and photos are just generally bad, I'm sorry to say. As for the selfie camera, same story, but a different ending. The main problem with the selfie camera is the focus. It's really soft, like all the time, which, again, probably looks okay on a phone screen, but if you put it on a computer, it's kind of gross. That being said, there are a couple factors to consider here. First of all, this review comes at the tail end of me revamping my camera evaluation technique, so going forward, I hope to have much more informed opinions on similar photos taken by various cameras under the same circumstances. So, this phone didn't make that particular cut, because frankly, it's a $200 gaming phone and I wasn't expecting any miracles. Second, and please do keep this in mind, my last phone review was the frickin' Pixel 4a, so I'm probably a little biased. Actually, scratch that. I'm definitely a little biased. Actually, scratch that. I'm definitely a lot biased. Of course, there is one more thing to talk about when it comes to blue, and I'm sorry for this blue, but it needs to be said. A few years ago, blue phones were found to contain backdoors that sent data back to China. Blue denied any wrongdoing and very quickly patched existing phones to get rid of the spyware. But that did harm Blue's reputation at the time. Now that being said, it's been three years and I just loaded all my information on here for the past few weeks and didn't give it a moment's thought. But it is worth mentioning just in case you were worried that, yeah, this may not be the most secure phone you've ever used. I have no reason to think that it isn't. But as they say, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And now, before we wrap things up, here's our You Review segment brought to you by, well, you. Herb asks, I don't game. Is the screen quality good enough for media consumption? And that's a fair question. I didn't really spend much time on this review talking about non-gaming stuff, but that's because Blue positions this as a gaming phone. It's fair to say that any screen designed for games is also going to do a great job with media consumption. This is a 6.5-inch screen, which is good, but it's also only Full HD+, which is not the best. The screen has a notch, which is not ideal, but it is in the center, and the more I think about it, the more I agree with one of the Android Central crew, I don't remember who, who tweeted the other day that a punch hole should only ever be in the middle of the screen. When it's off to the side, it just looks weird. It's also an LCD screen, so you're going to miss out on those super deep blacks, and dark mode won't help your battery life at all. With all that being said, I watched quite a few Netflix and other streaming shows on here, in addition to some cinematic clips from various games, and I was not disappointed at all. Darren asks, is the Blue G90 Pro a good phone for an everyday consumer who doesn't use their phone much? Put simply, yes. I think in that case, it's probably going to be great for you, especially if you don't use your phone much. On low usage, I would not be shocked to see this phone go an easy two days, if not more. That being said, this phone is heavier than the Samsung Galaxy Note 20 Ultra, so it's not a light boy. If you're using your phone sporadically, maybe also consider a Pixel 4a, which is smaller and lighter and is just as much a battery champ. Plus, Android is becoming more and more about anticipating your needs so that you can use your phone less, so a Pixel might be a good route for you. But it's also at least $100 more, so there's that. 
And finally, we have an anonymous question asking, how does the Helio 90T processor hold up against today's flagships? And I kind of touched on this a little bit in the review, but I want to reiterate it here. The Helio 90T processor stands up fairly well, but the benchmark scores don't stand up to what a Snapdragon 865 is going to do. And from a strictly benchmark standpoint, that is a little bit concerning. But from a performance standpoint, I threw a lot at this phone, and it did not hiccup at all. So I guess the real question is, is how will this stand up going forward? And in the future, will this processor be able to stand up to everything that a Snapdragon 865 will? I can't honestly answer that question because I don't live in the future, but I would be willing to bet that this phone will last a long time, especially considering the $200 or $250 price tag. So let's wrap this all up. What are you getting for your $200 phone? And I know I flip-flopped back and forth between $200 and $250 during this review, and that's because Blue introduced this phone at $200, but will increase the price to $250 after a certain introductory period. So it kind of depends on when you buy it. But anyway, what are you getting for your $200 phone? You're getting a lot. You're getting gaming performance and a gaming experience for a couple of Benjamins, you're getting a very capable phone that will get you through a day and a half, maybe even two days of light usage. And you're getting a phone that's cheap enough that you can buy a Pixel 4a along with it and still not pay as much as a OnePlus 8. Like if the Pixel 4a and this phone had a baby and sold it for like $450, that would be an amazing deal. And at $200 or $250, if you want a portable Fortnite box that you could just throw around and it looks good besides... There are worse ways to spend your money. Please just don't ever, ever, ever take a photo with it, or at least not a photo that you want to show to anyone, ever. But again, $200, people. Now, if you were to ask me if I would buy this phone, personally, probably not, because for $150 more, I can get a Pixel 4a, which is my favorite phone of the year. But stay tuned, folks, because another contender may have entered the arena, and stay tuned for that. As for right now, this phone absolutely delivered on what it promises, which is actually kind of rare in a phone these days. Blue promised a great gaming phone, and this is exactly that. But it's absolutely nothing else. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I would like to thank Blue for sending over a review unit of the Blue G90 Pro. And I would also like to remind you that Blue received no editorial oversight for this review. I would like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But as always, and most importantly, I would like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>